So, uh, Robin, I thought I thought it might be cool to do this uh, here at Frankie's Pizza. Oh yeah, Frankie's Pizza. Yes, quite oh, a right. great vibe. Um, yeah. What, what were you saying when we were coming in about the the Beatles? Even like the Beatles weren't perfect. No, not not the Beatles. The Beatles. Well, technically perfect, yes. They, uh, um... Oh, can I have another lady petrol, please? Uh, yeah, over... Uh, uh, how can you say With the Beatles is perfect? It's the, it's the worst album... Wait, no, I didn't order this. Scotch and soda. Sorry, I think you've got my lady petrol, Jeremy. Oh, here you go. Don't you mean... Uh, don't you mean please, please me? No, no, Lady Petrol was a nine-album single uh, that had uh, Hey Bullfrog on oh, the side. Oh, Lady Patroller. Yes, uh, uh, Please, Please, Please was uh, by Jans Brown. Yeah, well, I'll have another one of those. Whoa, go Frankie's. Yeah, Jans Brown and Coke, please. Yes. Hello, and welcome to My Favourite Album a podcast unpacking the great works of pop music and their impact on future generations of musicians. My name is Jeremy Dillon. For the past seven years, I've worked in the Australian music industry as a marketing and social media manager, music video director, and as part of the team at Concert Promoters and Managers Entertainment Edge. I'm also the director of the music documentary film, Jim Lauderdale, The King of Broken Hearts. Each episode, I'll be chatting with a different guest about their favourite album of all time, We'll discuss their history with the album, dissect the songs, and talk about how their love for the album has influenced their own work. The water wheel goes round and round Stick with me, baby You'll be glad that I'm the one you found I've got that full moon in my soul my guest today describes himself as a mix between Bertie Wooster, Doctor Who and Bob Dylan. From the Soft Boys to the Egyptians to the Venus 3 to today, he's remained uncommonly prolific as his songs continue to gain complexity as his catalogue grows more impressive and immense by the day. Robin Hitchcock, welcome to my favourite album. Oh, hello Jeremy, how are you? Oh, I'm alright, thanks. Um, so, Robin... What's your favourite album? Well, Jeremy, I'm glad you asked me that. Today, my favourite album is John Lennon, Plastic Ono Band. So, Plastic Ono Band, I know from a previous conversation that we had at uh, Frankie's Pizza that you are a, a big Beatles fan and were at the time a big Beatles fan. So, Oh, yeah. What was it like for you to hear Lennon immediately post-Beatles come out with a record that was this distinct and different from what he'd been doing within the group? It was disturbing in a way... The Beatles worked as a kind of, like a four-colour separation photo. You know, if you break down colour photos, you, you'll, get, you'll get yellow, blue, green and pink or something. They're called things like cyan and things. And yeah. I always think the Beatles broke down into things like that. So you could say that Paul was yellow, 
Ringo was blue, George was green, and John was red or something. And any one of those colours is too much on its own, but you put them together and it's perfect. But when the Beatles separated, you began to get an awful lot of each individual. Each album by Paul, George, John or Ringo was exclusively that colour, that flavour, and it was a bit much. But this record had so much momentum. I mean, in a way, I think it was the last great thing John Lennon did. And I think after that, he was really coasting on on his own sound and his own legend. I don't think he was ever as inspired or as intense again. Maybe that's doing, maybe the primal therapy kind of took it all out of him. Or maybe he just really had said almost everything he had to say. But the Plastic Ono Band record was the, the sort of, all the momentum that he'd had in the Beatles, all the momentum they'd all had going from the black and white world of 1962, where I first heard them as a boy in, in short trousers collecting breathing fungus and little insects in a bread tin somewhere on a hill in Surrey in England to the Abbey Road, you know, as a, already a, like a young, you know, growing my hair as long as I could and stretching my mind as far as I was allowed or not allowed, you know. The whole world changed so much between 1962 and 1969, the years that the Beatles existed. And then the Beatles and everybody else were catapulted out into 1970 and the Beatles disintegrated. I mean, it was just almost as if they'd suddenly come out of a spacecraft and popped, you know, the lack of atmospheric pressure, nothing kept them together. They did their last recording session January 4th, 5th, 1970, and Lennon didn't even show up for that. You know, within four months, they were publicly at war with each other. Within a year, McCartney was suing them, you know, and it was all over. And John Lennon, not only did he have his, his personal struggle with existence that had begun by his parents leaving him when he was little and then his mum coming back and then being killed sort of in front of him by a car crash and everything, you know, hit by a tram or something. He was an uncomfortable, by all accounts, a pretty tortured soul, but he also was in this extraordinary vehicle, a module that reflected the times and created the times, like Bob Dylan like or like our, our DJ John Peel later on, you know, was very much Peel listened to stuff and he beamed it back out. So, he, you know, the, those sorts of people are just, they really travel in time, their own time, and they're part of it, whereas I'm not. I actually travel across time or possibly even backwards. I'm absolutely nothing to do with the zeitgeist. But I was formed in that period, and then I kind of remained like a mammoth frozen in ice until I emerged completely out of sync with the times uh, seven or eight years later with the soft boys. But, you know, Lennon was really part of it. So he's got the Beatles journey, and then he's got his own journey. And, you know, we go from a, the black and white pre-Profumo world, a world where nobody could have sex without being married, where homosexuality, as it was called, was illegal, where nobody smoked marijuana, where even somebody with hair and a beard like yours would be seen as a... And by the way, listeners, Jeremy is, has a trim hair and trim beard. <laughs> but, you know, you'd have looked like a bloody intellectual. You'd have been some bloke in a... In, in in Oz, I imagine you would have been extremely... You'd have probably had to move to Britain to probably. even look like that. I know Australia was very conservative in the 50s and early 60s, which caused the diaspora of, you know, Clive James and Martin Sharp and Richard Neville and Jermaine Greer and, you know, who came and 
enlightened us up in Pomsville and whose underground magazines I used to read and, uh, you know, um, probably read my first review of Plastic Ono Band in, in Oz, the underground magazine that, that Richard Neville and Martin Sharp started. So, you know, 1962, it was all like that. 1969, it, essentially, modern life had started. There were hairy people. People could sleep with each other regardless of gender or marriage certificate, at least in, at least in the cities. Essentially, modern life had begun, and, and the Beatles pioneered all of this. And then, and, you know, they were falling apart ever since Brian Epstein died or whatever. But come 1970, there was just nothing. And so you've got John Lennon's emotional reaction to all this in one disc, you know. So I can't think of a pop, a rock record. It's not a pop record. I don't think anything in it charted. But I can't think of another rock record that is so personal, so emotional, and yet applies generally to everybody. It's not just sort of the pain of John Ono Lennon, but it actually... it's it's universal, it goes everywhere, you know. God is a concept by which we measure our pain. It's interesting because it is such a specific emotional moment captured in an album, but it is universal because if you even if you just look at the song titles, the song titles are you know God, yeah, look at me, hold on, mother. They're, these are like elemental. Then isolation, working class yeah, hero. Yeah. I found out. It's, it's not like in a later record he'd have a song like Oh Yoko I mean that's clearly about one specific particular person and that's much it'd be harder for someone to insert themselves into a song called Oh Yoko than it would be into a song which is yeah yeah any of these songs it was it's it was an odd gift he had and and that Yoko shared I think of being able to make shares because uh, she's still with us thankfully of being able to make the personal universal you know they were both good with slogans and they were both good with the media the media didn't necessarily like them but they but it couldn't keep away from them or it didn't necessarily approve of them but they decided to make their personal life public um you know sort of including the breakup in 73 74 when sort of john went off into an after show for a while even the sort of private years after Sean was born, it was presented to the public in a definite way. They were very good at their own spin, I suppose. You know, uh, they were both good-looking, photogenic people, and, and they were just good with they were good with thoughts and captions. Probably what drew them together, amongst other things. You know, yeah, boy, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> was Lennon the Beatle that you most gravitated towards? Lennon and Harrison. The dead ones were my faves. (laughs) (laughs) So So your your bad luck is what you're saying. No, I'm don't think I'm bad luck. I think I I think I probably went for the 
the explorers, if you like. I don't know how much their f fates are linked with that, but although someone tried to kill George, you know, broke into the house and, and, and George was already ill with cancer, apparently, and, and this guy stabbed him, and I think it, it, it hastened George's demise. He lived another couple of years after that, but it can't have done his system much good. Yeah. It, it's astonishing to think that two of the Beatles were actually physically... One was killed and the other was almost killed, you know, by people who knew them. And the weird thing was that happens, you know, the death threats and stuff were all in the mid-60s. That's when they were worried about... After John Lennon said the Beatles were more popular than Jesus, he didn't say they were better than Jesus, he said they were more popular than Jesus. But this was interpreted as saying, you know, we're bigger than you, Lord. Yeah. And, and, and Lennon no, no, was, What they said was they were bigger than Rod, and Rod Stewart would be big for another five years, so... <laughs> I like George and I like John, but I, th I also liked the way they all were together. I don't think you can break the Beatles down into, oh, it was really Paul's group or it was really John. You know, it, yeah. it, it was the combination. It was the fact that these egos were able to work for quite a long time together as a team when three out of the four were actually brilliant songwriters. You know, you wouldn't normally get that much cream in a pie you wouldn't <laughs> you, you know it's like when you get triplets or some you know multiply fertilized egg or something it, yeah. it just doesn't normally happen any one of them would have had enough talent to front a group but you put them all in there and that's partly why why that stuff still resonates the Beatles were like brothers, but they were also like an academy of songwriting. They kind of... If you listen to the stuff, they, the covers they sang at the beginning, you hear them on the BBC sessions, where I can't tell their voices apart. I can't tell John from George. They're all going... And they're getting lots of reverb in these yeah, sort of yeah. Mersey voices, you know. And then you listen to stuff right at the end when they're not even playing on each other's songs, like the White Album. But they're all playing... They're all playing, you know, minor sixth and or diminished chords. They all the the Beatle Academy was something they never got out of, and it's something that I am, you know, I am a lifelong disciple, or oh, I'm an alumnus of that. I still write songs and play music and appreciate music as a Beatle student, and I love Captain Beefheart and you know the kind of anti anti beatleism of that but there's so many musicians I know who are still that's not like Neil Finn you know he's a complete Beatle yeah but yeah no I like jo I like John and I like George and I think George was mysterious and cool and slightly cute in a way and John was Richard Lester so Dick Lester the guy who the film director I met him once the one who did uh, who directed A Hard Day's yeah. Night and Help he said oh he said John had a way of making you care about him and right. I think that's the key. If you listen to the Beatles, they harmonise beautifully together. They're all from the same academy. They're, they're you know, they're miraculous. What, what the chances of three of those people turning up, being five foot eleven, having straight brown hair, and being born within three years of each other in Liverpool? I mean, <laughs> yeah. it, it sounds like the aliens were at work. Someone was sprinkling some juice. You know, the avatars were going. Okay, I think <laughs> we're going to create something here. It's eerie that they happen to spring up like that but I think John Lennon perhaps perhaps because he had the worst childhood was the one who had something in his voice that was the most connecting yeah to me there's always seemed like there was something incredibly intimate about the way John Lennon sings and it's not necessarily I mean I think that comes through even when he's really projecting really selling a 
a rock vocal or something yeah. explosive, but it's just something about it feels like he's right up against your ear. Yes. As soon as you're born, they make you feel small. By giving you no time instead of it all. Till the pain is so big you feel nothing at all. A working class hero is something to be. A working class hero is something to be. I mean, he also had an amazing voice. He was able to sing, you know, high planing notes. Like, I mean, he, he wrote that song Because on Abbey Road, the one with the lovely harmonies on it, you know, which even the Beach Boys couldn't have come up with. He could also scream, you know, he could sing your blues and cold turkey. I mean, Paul was also a great rock singer. He could, George less so, he hadn't really got the that break in his voice. But, I mean, Paul is... His voice is as talented as John's. It, it, it's as dynamic as John's. But Paul doesn't reach me emotionally the way that John does, which is probably a good thing. Very different flavours, but similar outlines or whatever, you know. Mm. And, and a perfect antidote to each other. You wouldn't want John singing with another John. It's just some, you know, they, they threw each other into relief and... Anyway, yeah, but you're right. He, it was it was intimate. It was close up. It's, it's person to person. You know, he's yeah. absolutely. He doesn't know he's singing to you, but you know he's you know he's singing to you. It's it's the same way that Bob Dylan's voice was so hypnotic. You couldn't miss it. Maybe people felt like that about Johnny Rotten, who had a very kind of irritating voice. But it 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 kind of. Johnny Rotten, a bit like Yoko, was someone who kind of invented a new something new to do with the voice. You know, they were yeah. both Aquarians. Well, I mean, I mean, Johnny Rotten is someone who had a deliberately contrived vocal style, and whereas it's funny that Lennon, we talk, we've just you know spent five minutes talking about how great a singer and how great John Lennon's voice is, and he famously hated his own voice, and would yes, and would always ask the engineers to make him sound like anything but himself. Yes, it's odd. I mean, I th- although not only did I love his voice, but I loved the way he disguised it. I loved his double track vocals and all the delay and the reverb. You know, you listen to A Day in the Life, especially the kind of bootleg outtakes of, of where it's just a guitar and a voice and a bass or something. He's got beautiful delays. You know, you can just picture him there stoned out of his mind, lying on the floor with his one headphone on, sort of singing. I mean, it just sound, it sounds beautiful. He, and born on waves of delay, tape delay, you know. So, in other words, the things he used to hide his voice, I think, enhanced it. And I know once he died, Yoko started releasing his stuff without the effects. Yeah, stripped back mixes. Yeah, but I, I love his voice, but I think I, I love the way he protected it. And they all double-tracked. John, Paul and George, that was the first studio trick they had, George Martin had, was double-tracking that they latched onto, you know. Uh, I love love double-tracking. Huge fan.
so the record opens with Mother, and mm. it seems like that's, you know, starting the story at the beginning. It's like the John Lennon's emotional origin story. Um, yeah, yeah. And if you're going to... You're going to open a record and let people know what they're in for. It's, and yes. let people know that this isn't an album of songs like being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. Um, yes. It's something a bit more full on. You're going to open with a series of lines like, Mother, you had me, but I never had you. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a good point. I mean, how much do you have your parents? In, in, in an odd way, it's a game of possession that nobody wins. You know, people... Your parents put you there, and in some ways they lay claim to you, but in other ways they're inaccessible. You know, they can't... I'm sure it varies according to how effective a parent you've had, but I don't think I don't think you can win as a parent, and I don't think you can win as a child. You know, it's my uncles and aunts, so it's much easier with them. I mean, Lennon lived with his auntie Mimi. To an extent, that's what this song is about. Like, he felt... He, f- he f- had these feelings of rejection from his mother because mm. he started out growing up with his aunt Mimi and yeah. then only really connected with his m- mother when he was a little bit older, when he was in his teenage years. Right. And then she got killed in a in a car accident. So he lost her twice, basically, yeah. yeah. And there's that, you know, the line in the song, Mama, don't go, Daddy, come oh, home. yeah, yeah. And his, his father had... Had left the family when he was a when he was a little kid before I even really um, knew him. So and then came back when Lennon was famous. Yeah, and basically tried to sort of sponge off his glory. No, I mean it was nothing good for him about his background at all. I mean about his parents. It was lucky Auntie Mimi looked after him, and um, McCartney looked after him, and then Yoko looked after him. You know, but he was probably he was probably also fighting against those people at times they probably found them you know they were probably authority figures he needed but also wanted to reject he probably had all that stuff going on and his first child Julian was born as he was about to become King John the Uber Beetle so Julian probably didn't get a lot of quality John which is why he made a big effort with Sean and and which was then was then cut short by a fan um so yeah you can see why he why he would have sung that <laughs> to be sure people say we got it made don't they know we're so afraid I we're afraid to be alone everybody got to have a home It's such a confronting record, and I think a lot of it probably stems from the fact that in the lead-up to it, he'd gone through this... He and Yoko had gone through this therapy called uh, Primal Scream. Yeah. And the idea of that was instead of, you know, just sort of, you know, talking out your problems and analysis, you have to kind of really recall and try and relive all the traumatic experiences in your life and work through them that way. And he... They didn't actually finish the therapy properly because it was being conducted in the States. Yes. And he was having all those visa problems at the time and couldn't stay in the US for the whole therapy. So he came back and his version of finishing that therapy really was making this album. Yes. He must have written that stuff 
during it. I mean, if you have you heard the he did the big Rolling Stone interview that came out when when the record came out in yeah. sort of November 1970, and I mean it was the it was the sort of famous one. It goes with the record where he basically kind of lifts the lid off the Beatles and says how ghastly it all was and how horrible they were and how shitty the whole proceedings was. And, you know, everything, uh, yeah, everything uh, we shared, all those records. Right, I mean, and that's really, in, in, a, in a way, he's very honest. In another way, he's, he's absurdly ungrateful. You know, McCartney knew what he had and was grateful for it. It doesn't sound like Lennon really valued anything much. But it, I, I'd read that interview, those interviews, many times, actually, ever since they came out. I remember, I remember buying the part one in a newsstand on the Earl's Court Road in <laughs> December 1970 in my crushed velvet loon pants. Oh, wow. And um, I heard it broadcast on the radio for the first time about two or three years ago, and I was shocked at how peevish John Lennon sounded. It, it translated all right into when it was written down, him and him talking to Jan Wenner, but, but when you hear it, he really sounds like an angry kid. And I realise that this is because, as you say, the Primal Therapy... Dr Janoff, who, who ran the Primal Therapy Institute, I think didn't want him and John and Yoko to go, but they did. So the therapy was not completed. And so Lennon was still in this kind of angry kid phase. And um, he'd recorded the songs, but he sounded like, you know, all the charm and the sort of... He was always able to be quite charming and quite buoyant. All the Beatles had that. The Beatles are all very persuasive. If you hear an interview with any yeah. of them, you tend to agree with what they're saying. You know, they just, they're just they kind of just persuasive. They've just got that Irish Liverpudlian, this is how <laughs> it is. Of course, you're absolutely right, you know. But he, that wasn't there in that, in that primal interview. He just sounds like an angry, horrible little kid. You're waiting for Yoko to sort of take him away and either smack him or give him an ice cream or put him to bed, you know. It's funny, but it... It just shows it was in the middle of the therapy, but it shows how, you know, he was, I guess, just really vulnerable and had to protect himself. So his senses were probably left forever open in certain ways, you know, and he dealt with it as a teenager by being obnoxious and after his mum died, being more obnoxious and horrible to his girlfriends and, you know, physically violent and all sorts of stuff. Alternating with being apparently really charming and cute, and but he could always put things. And I never met him, but it just—I feel like he could always put things so you could see from his point of view. And it applied to you, the listener. It wasn't—it was a, quite a gift, really. I'd walk away with a kind of Robin Hitchcock would feel kind of endorsed by John Lennon, if you see what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, it was great stuff. This album. The specificity of it is a real product of the time in which it was made because I feel like today an artist of that stature puts out a record, typically like someone who's that in the centre of the mm. pop universe will put a record out every two or three years, more or less like clockwork. Yeah. So it has to kind of be the a representation of everything that artist is about because it's going to be another two or three years until the next record. Whereas, you know, at the time, you know, people put out a record once a year. I mean, all the Beatles were doing that even a little bit more frequently than mm. that. So Lennon could put out a record like Plastic Ono Band that was just, I'm, I'm angry and I feel like shit and I'm really vulnerable and the whole record is going to be that. And it didn't matter that it didn't represent the other parts of his personality because, you know, he'd have another record along in a year. 
And, you know, these days people don't do that because they don't keep the release schedule up except for, you know, someone like you who does average about a record a year. I put out a lot of records, but I suppose I come from that time when people did put, make a lot of records. It's my main medium of work. I write a bit and I draw and paint a bit, but my essential me is songwriting and indeed singing. So, you know, I am prolific. I would I would record all the time if I had if I could be bothered to, you know, develop a home studio or in fact develop a home. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah. I mean, I, I do record a lot, so I release a lot, I suppose, and I withhold a certain amount which pops up later, dusted with antiquity. I think they part of their John and Yoko's approach from from, from the peace campaign onwards, you know, where they would be in bed uh, in their pyjamas and nighties talking to the... The bed-ins. The, the bed-ins. From, from, from kind of then onwards, they decided to be very public. I think he said something, John said something about news, wanting to make records like newspapers, where you let everybody know how you felt that day. Now, obviously, not everybody can tell the world how they feel that day and have the world care. Yeah. As the prime Beatle, with Yoko in tow, or in tandem, his sense of self-importance was probably quite high, but maybe not exaggerated. So he knew that what they did would be news. I mean, you know, in a way, right from the two virgins, their first night together, what do they do? They go downstairs and take a photograph of the pair of them naked, <laughs> and then release the music they've just recorded... On a major label, you know, I mean... It, it, and this they were is the Kanye West and King Kardashian of their day. <laughs> yeah, you know, so I think the sort of exhibitionist side or the, the public figure side or the, the newsroom, the Lennon Ono newsroom, here we are, this is what's going on, this is how I feel they're on about, was quite keen to get stuff out. You know, that song Instant Karma was supposedly written and recorded in one day. He sort of got out of bed with this tune in his brain, started playing it on the piano, rang up whoever he could, and they recorded it in Abbey Road. Phil Spector was around, George Harrison played on it, I think. It was done in a day and it was released, you know, he managed to get Apple to release it two weeks later or something like that. So, I mean, if he was around now, he would be totally Facebook, Twitter, you know, it would all be podcast. They would, I mean, assuming that as he was in a public mode, but I imagine Lennon would have been a great tweeter and he would have, his thoughts on everything would have come out very quickly on a variety of topics, you know. Well, Yoko's a, an, an assiduous tweeter. She doesn't tend to comment on her thoughts and more general philosophical thoughts. But, you know, he, he'd have really been, been on that, I think. So, so I think... The album, the Plastic Ono Band, in a way, was a follow-up to Instant Karma, which was the first kind of, here I am, this is what's happening. I mean, Cold Turkey sort of was. I mean, I didn't realise, I don't think anyone realised that he'd actually been a junkie at that point. I was rather shocked. I knew Cold Turkey was about coming off heroin, but I never occurred to me that a Beatle would have been doing heroin, but I guess he had, you know, he was already had a, a phase of being on junk and coming off it. So even Give Peace a Chance, that was recorded at one of the bed-ins. So I think he used his singles as sort of little newspapers, if you like, little bulletins. And this one was the big bulletin. Right, here's my childhood. Ugh, it sucks. Fuck, you know, <laughs> life is pain. And, um, you know, grab this lot, Beatle people. I don't believe in Beatles. 
I think he was going back to that Rolling Stone interview where he was so disdainful of the whole, you know, everything that he'd done in the Beatles and that mm. whole. Yeah, I think he had the music of the Beatles was so tied up in the emotional emotional turmoil he was going through in that whole period. Yeah. He couldn't separate the two. So his whole musical process for a while after that became a rejection of the latter-day Beatles process, which I think he saw as, like, McCartney taking over the group and everything was too produced and took too long. Yes. So, you know, instant karma, you know, he walks in the door, Phil Spector's there, and Phil Spector says, how do you want it to sound? And Lennon says, 50s. And Spector gives him the thumbs up and then they cut the track. Yes. And this record, um, Plastic Ono Band, is musically very simple and very direct and really each track is essentially it's either a uh, like an acoustic track like Look At Me or it's a mm. which has that kind of you know Dear Prudence kind of yeah, picking, the picking. yeah, yeah. or it's a band track which has the same rhythm section sound which is Klaus Foreman um, on bass and Ringo on drums and then there'll be one element which is distinct to that track. So, like, um, on I Found Out, it's that real fuzz, fuzzy yeah, electric guitar. Yeah. Yes, and on Well, Well, Well. Yeah. Right, it's either that or it's the, it's the piano, as in Mother or God yeah. or um, Isolation. Yeah. Beautifully recorded. I and mean, one of the great things about the record is, is how underdubbed it is. harmonies or a brass section or the flux fiddlers or you know another couple of guitarists the records he made after that everything starts to it start they start to fill the space gets filled and within two or three albums there's no musical difference between the way he was recording and McCartney was recording McCartney was probably the arrangements were probably slightly better they were just using the same old ingredients again but but in this one as you say, maybe as a reaction to Paul and the world of production and George Martin and stuff, everything's pruned right back. I th- I always wondered also if it was influenced by John Wesley Harding, the the record that Bob Dylan put out right. after he'd had his bike crash or you know his his he disappeared for eighteen months and went from being a kind of curly haired androgynous sarcastic elliptical visionary to being a sort of good old country chap with a little beard and a and a sort of knowing smile you know and he yeah. kind of he kind of grew up 
or appeared to in that very fast. And he, he when Dylan, you know, Blonde on Blonde was was that was a, an awful lot was going on in Blonde on Blonde music. See, my phone agrees musically, <laughs> and um, a lot of words, a lot of music, long songs, long hair, long thoughts, serpentine thoughts, narcotic thoughts, whatever. John Wesley Harding was just acoustic guitar, bass and drums, except for two tracks that had piano, bass and drums, bit of harmonica, short songs, not to the point in the way that Plastic Ono Band was to the point, but certainly kind of sober. Mm. Certainly all the images had been pruned, all the paraphernalia, the, just the way things go trailing off, you know, in, in the hippie days, in the stoner days, in the long-winded kind of... So all that had gone. It was, it was that, if you like, that was, I think John Wesley Harding was, was Bob Dylan's sober record. I don't know how sober he was, what he was sober on or sober off, but, you know, I feel like that Plastic Ono Band is Lennon's sober record. He was probably not on smack when he was singing it. He was probably not even smoking dope, and I don't even know if he was drinking much, you know. He was probably chain-smoking gulwars and drinking coffee, but it... It seems to me like the product of a frighteningly sober mind. There's nothing protecting him. The only thing that's protecting him now is delay and reverb, you know, it's and, and Yoko. It's that starkness. It's it, In recording, there's always this tendency to fill up the tracks because you can. You know, we were just looking at that mono machine outside in the recording studio, which is mm-hmm. you could only record one, it would, like one track, that would be yeah. it, you know. But ever since multi-tracking came and the Beatles started linking up, or George Martin started linking up four-track machines to become eight-track, and then, you know, you got 16-track and 24-track after the Beatles' time, and, and the big rock poo bars and mandarins would, would what they call slave-up desks, where you'd get to... Brian Ferry could have two 24-track desks slaved up together at Psalm or Compass Point, making 48 tracks, and now it's infinite with digital. Mm. You can put... Everything can be covered in dust and multi-tracks, and and there's a real... I really admire people who just don't fill in all the space, and I keep trying to stop myself from doing it. Yeah, I'm a chronic double-tracker, but I really admire records where they've stopped two overdubs short of where they might have done, And, and I always feel that there's... The emptiness of John Wesley Harding and the emptiness of Plastic Ono Band really reinforces them as whatever their message is. Makes them less comfortable to listen to. You, you don't sort of put them on for a, an ambient vibe. No, you know. this, is, this is not a record I would put on at parties. No, no. And, I mean, you wouldn't normally put Dylan on at a party, but, but some Dylan stuff has, you know, it sounds like a rock record's going on. There's some yeah. sort of group. But, but in order to do that, you really have to have something to say. And I suppose that was where each of those guys had their pulpit, if you like. John Wesley Harding's never moved me deeply, whereas I, I Plastic Ono Band, does make me cry as a kid and still does, you know, it's, it's, it's the most emotional record I know. I think those comparisons are interesting because they're both sort of, they're icons of the 60s getting to, you know, the end of the 60s and this is, this is their version of, whoa, we went a bit over the top there. This is, yes, yeah. This is our template for the... Next decade, you can even, I mean, even though they they never did a paired back thing, you could almost say the same thing about the Stones, who went from a decade where they did lots of experimentation with 
sitars and marimbas and weird instruments to a decade where there were basically a two guitar bass drums uh, rock band with piano or saxophones mm. occasionally. So I think John Wesley Harding, you could see it um, as soon as it came out, it affected um, the Beatles and the Stones. Bob Dylan had Dear Landlord, so John Lennon wrote Dear Prudence and the Stones wrote Dear Doctor. You know, the, the Beggar's Banquet immediately shifted from... They got rid of the sitars and the caftans, like most people did in 68. I mean, yeah. I'm sure Keith Richard was very happy to see the back of it all, but they... Well, they got rid of Brian Jones. And Brian Jones, or he got rid of himself. And they started to become kind of what's now would now be called an Americana or alt-country... Mm. You know, ten years ago, Exile on Main Street would have been called Alt Country, and now it would be called Americana. Yeah, it'd, um, it'd be a Ryan Adams record. It would be a Ryan. <laughs> it probably is a Ryan Adams record now. But yeah, no, I think the Stones and the Beatles. You know, I think Get Back was a an attempt a, a bit to do the John Wesley Harding thing. Of, you know, well, what are we really about, folks? Yeah, you know? let's let's get back to our um, bare bare essentials. Or yeah, yeah. No, I think it all did. You could. Uh, John Wesley Harding came out like the first week of 1968 and 67 had been this endless momentum of, of you know summer of love well summer of love autumn of love flower power you know i was too young to get stoned but i certainly was absorbing the atmosphere you know and you could just everything was hairy and colorful and and fantastical and and then dead of winter out came john wesley harding stark beige cover, two-and-a-half-minute songs, not much imagery, no electric guitar or keyboard, the anti-psychedelic record. And then the Beatles go and put out Lady Madonna and the Stones do Jumping Jack Flash. Everybody starts getting back. They all... It's like Dylan had sort of got to the abyss and gone, whoa, okay, I'm going to shuffle off. I'll just lead my horse back down the plains and we'll go clippity-clop. There must be some way out of here Said the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief And the rest of them all just thought, they all seemed to go, yeah, we'll go clippity-clop too, Bob. (laughs) They all followed him back into their... And and that, that was when that generation peaked and then, you know, other people came along, like... Bowie and Roxy music, and who sort of developed things further in the in the seventies, but but that and the Floyd, arguably or whatever, but you know that lot certainly that was they all seemed to peak about the same time. So, are there any songs of yours through your catalogue that you could look at specifically and say this was influenced by Plastic Ono Band? Oh, yeah. Uh, there's a song of mine on Element of Light, which came out yeah. a mere 28 years ago, called Somewhere Apart, which right. is based on 
when I first started singing it, it was a kind of Van Morrison-y song, but it very quickly turned into a sort of a rip-off or a riff-on, depending on how you kindly you want to put it, of Remember. It's not like Remember in that Remember has very specific lyrics about childhood. Yeah. And my song is, in a way, quite abstract, but I maintain it's emotionally uh, to the point, even if you the words are quite free-range, because sometimes I think you say more by not deciding what you're going to say. And if what you say seems obscure or abstruse or abstract or anything beginning with abs you know it's just like that's the emotion the emotional truth and you can then sit around and try and figure out what the words are for but they are the words come to you in that form and you know if i'd been sitting there singing specific songs about specific lyrics about my parents it would have been too much of a rip off of remember <laughs> uh no mine somewhere apart is definitely a plastic ono band tribute it's affected the sound I like, but it's one of those things that I I know eludes me. I cannot write or sing as directly as John Lennon could. He had a gift for encapsulating things and making them simple, a, a gift of, of reduction, if you like. I know sometimes I'll come up with a line that puts my finger puts the finger on it, and I've I've sort of got it in a way that people could latch onto it. But I know that also. There's stuff about the way my mind works and the way I reach for words which isn't like that. You know, it's much more all over the place. I mean, he could, you know, he could free range with his words and he could be specific. He wrote, I am the walrus, and he wrote God. He's, he's, he's kind of able to do both, but I'm probably always more in the kind of walrus camp just because of, the way my mind wanders and I never sat there with a Paul McCartney figure writing pop songs and trying to communicate with people. I came along at a point when you could just be some hippie, what they used to call freak. <laughs> Freaks were, you know, Roy Harper or Sid Barrett or Captain Beefheart or the Incredible String Band. They were the sort of... In the Beatles, George and John were freaks, Paul and Ringo weren't. Uh, the freaks probably consumed more stimulants or whatever, and the freaks were hairier and more kind of gnostic, gnomic, knowing, I don't know, kind of, yeah, man, turn upside <laughs> down, boom, I'm not here, neither are you. <laughs> you know, that kind of, that's what I grew up with as a young man, you know, we, yeah. this, uh, uh, I'm from the generation that wanted to levitate the Pentagon. Our goals were not realistic. <laughs> Life has been a constant hangover since December the 31st, 1969, when all that happened was 1970. As John Lennon himself said before, just before he died, he said, um, so, you know, I'm saying this new record is like, um, well, uh, weren't, how's your relationship? Weren't the 70s a drag? And, you know, I'm just like, exactly, mate. You know, <laughs> drag is putting it mildly. It was 
it was a total hangover. There was suddenly no one was going to levitate anywhere. Human nature had not altered one iota. You could get as high as you liked, you were still sitting on the ground, you just had a headache. You know, it was all kind of... We might have just as well have sat there drinking bottle after bottle of Lady Petrol for all the insight that, that, that we gained. But um, too bad, you know, we, a lot of us lived to do just that. Yesterday's toko is tomorrow's alcoholic, you know. And on that note, uh, <laughs> Robert Hitchcock, thank you for talking to me about your favourite album. Oh, it's a pleasure. Any, any decade, Jeremy. Any decade. Decade. Lovely. Cheers. Cheers. Oh. Oh, boogie on reggae, woman. Goo goo goo